Well, our children were blessed to take piano lessons, first from my Aunt Karen, and then from an incredible teacher named Anna Farish, who was also the director of the piano ensemble team. And I had never known what a piano ensemble was, but there are up to 17 pianos playing the same piece simultaneously with different children playing different parts harmoniously with one another, sometimes two per piano. And it's remarkable. So the kids spend months learning the particular part and then they audition. And if they make the team, the real work begins. And in all fairness, the first couple share, uh, sessions are fairly cacophonous. And so, because all these kids can play their part, which is entirely different than playing it with 29 other people or 14 other people, all simultaneously. And even when they start getting the notes right, you have to get the dynamics right, and you have to get the tone right, and the durations right, and the articulations. And the temptation is there to grumble, and to dispute, and to contend. But as they persevere, and as they continue to work, they begin to come together, and then it becomes this harmonious whole that is greater than any one individual penis could have played. And then they go and they represent Denton at the state convention, and the Denton team shine because of their harmonious performances of these complex pieces. And then they were able to come and perform at Vortman Hall at UNT or at TWU, and the proud parents beamed while the kids played, and it was glorious. And all of that hard work to accomplish that harmony paid off. They represented Denton well, they made their, prouds, pr their parents proud, and even though it was the hardest thing that they did each uh, piano season, it was the highlight of their piano career. Harmony's hard. And in whatever field that you pursued, you've discovered whether in athletics or business or family or church, working in harmony and concord with other people is challenging. But when we're able to persevere, when we're able to overcome our tendency to complain and grumble, when we're able to actually work together as one, then the results are glorious. And we take pride and joy in what God has done through us. Well, that's going to be Paul's theme as he concludes his first challenge to the Philippians this morning. This is the fourth message of what actually is one solid block of teaching material in Paul's letter to the Philippians. That his primary challenge, his first challenge, was that they live worthily of the gospel, that we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that we're standing firm, we're striving together, single-mindedly willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. But this means we have to work hard to be united and humble, to not merely look out for our own personal interests, but for the interest of others as well. Following the example of Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a bod servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul now concludes with a final exhortation on this same theme to stay harmonious and luminous. <coughs> this passage, this paragraph has three sentences that give us our three sections. There's actually four commands, two of them nearly simultaneous. First of all, that we have to work out our salvation. Secondly, that in doing so, we cannot grumble or dispute. And thirdly, that we are to rejoice and share our joy. So let's look initially at verses 12 and 13 about working out our salvation together. Paul begins with a conjunction, so then, that tells us that this paragraph is building off of what he's just communicated. 
So in light of what he's told us about the humility of Christ and the sacrificial selfless love of Christ, this is our result. This is our response. This is in consequence of what Jesus has done. And so when my wife's family fled to America from Vietnam, her dad was a lieutenant colonel in the South Vietnamese Army. But when he came to America, all that career path was done. And he took a job on a road crew, and then he took a job at a Texaco station, and he worked at a bay doing lube jobs at uh, Texaco for 30 years, 20 years, six days a week, long days for not much pay, no benefits. And his example of selfless sacrifice for his family still inspires the kids. And because dad did this, so then, this is what we're going to do for dad. If dad did this so that we could go to college, so then we're going to study hard. If dad did this for his family, so then we're going to do this for our family. And that's the sense. Because Christ did all of these things for us, so then how do we respond? And he gives a couple of other additional motivations. First is the endearment, my beloved. So Paul reminds them that, yes, he's their founding pastor. Yes, he's in prison writing to them. Yes, he's exhorting. He's about to exhort them and tell them to do something that's going to be hard and challenging and demanding. But he reminds them not just that they're beloved of God, but that they're his beloved, that he loves them. And secondly, that he's confident in them. He says, just as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul says, when I first came to Philippi and I preached the gospel to you, you responded in obedience. And when I was your pastor, you were obedient. And when God moved me to the other towns, you still partnered with me in the gospel. And now I've gotten words from Epaphroditus and others that you're still walking in faith. And I'm hoping to be released and to come to you. And I know that I'm going to find you obedient. And so before he gives this command, he tells them, I love you and I'm proud of you. I love you and I believe in you which are additional compelling reasons. So look at all the motivations. Because Christ was humble and selflessly sacrificed for you. Because I love you. And because you have obeyed, will obey, and I believe that you're going to obey this. Now listen to what I'm about to tell you to do. Which is initially to work out your salvation. Now he doesn't say work for your salvation. That would be blasphemous. <laughs> He doesn't say work to maintain your salvation. Paul believes and teaches that once we are in Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But there is a response that we make, namely that those who are saved now work out that salvation. There is an outworking to our salvation that once God saves us, we are to conduct ourselves accordingly. Once we have been saved by the gospel, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Once we have been identified with Christ, we are to live a Christ-like life. Once we are in the body of Christ, the church, we are to conduct ourselves in harmony and concord and love with one another. And so there is this outworking of our salvation that is to characterize all of our relationships. And this isn't passive. This isn't let go and let God and wait for him to make us grow like grass. Uh, it's a command. It's an imperative. And it uses that word work. And it also is a plural command that this isn't just simply for individual believers, although we have to individually embrace it. He's talking to the church. He's the coach speaking to the team. He's the boss speaking to the business. He's the, the commanding officer speaking to the troop. And he's saying that you corporately are to work together to accomplish this together because it's going to take all of you to do it. 
So at Dallas Seminary, uh, Brian and I had to take five semesters of Greek. Uh, he went on beyond that for his New Testament major. But the fifth semester is you study the book of Romans, you translate it twice, and then you have to teach what's called a write a theological synthesis paper, where you take all of your exegetical skills that you've learned on how to study a passage and you synthesize it into a teaching from the book of Romans. And what God struck me with that semester was that the majority of the commands in Paul are plural. Paul is writing to the Colossians, to the Philippians, to the Ephesians, to the Romans. And even the times that he's writing an individual like Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, it has plural implications. Now, having come to Christ as an evangelical, a Protestant, I really thought the Christian life was about me and Jesus. And I knew I was supposed to have a quiet time and I was supposed to grow in my walk with Christ and I was supposed to become more like Christ and I was supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And it never occurred to me that the majority of those commands were plural and that this command is to a community. And so I wrote my paper on corporate sanctification and what it means for us as a family to help each other grow together in Christ as the community of Christ. And the title of my paper was, Am I My Brother's Keeper? Remember Cain, when he murdered Abel, asked that question of God. God says, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? And of course, what's the answer to that? Yes, you are. And that paper impacted me in a way that I never recovered from. That we are each other's keepers because we are each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. And this call to sanctification is a call to corporate sanctification because it's called to become a Christ-like community. I need your help to become more like Christ. And when you see me struggling, I need your prayers. And when you see me sinning, I need your reproofs. And when you see me waxing, I need your example. And you need me. And we need each other. And that's why we can't forsake the assembling together as the habit of some, but we have to come together all the more as we see the day drawing near to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Because in a hard world, it's discouraging to keep trying to love and do good deeds. The Bible says that in the midst of the lawlessness of this wicked world, our love can grow cold. And don't you feel that? That just, it's so many rude and calloused and hard-hearted people and it just gets hard to keep being soft-hearted and loving and kind and we need each other. And so this is a call for us as a church to help each other as a church work out our salvation by living together in love and harmony and concord as Christ expects us to do. That's what this verse means. And we all have our individual application, but it's the community that is being called and exhorted to do this. Now he gives us an additional motivation. We're to do so with fear and trembling because we will render an account. We will stand before God and answer for everything that we did or did not do. Every wicked word that we said or good word that we did not say, every false motive, every self-righteous hypocritical act Remember, if you're, many of us are teachers in here, and the, the question the students often ask, is this on the test? And the answer is yes, it's all on the test. Everything we do in this life is on the test. It's all part of the audit. And so Paul says, embrace this command accordingly with great reverence, because the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. 
Trembling has the idea of this physical manifestation of this fear of, I'm going to have to stand before God and answer if I snub you or if I hurt you with my sarcasm or with my criticism or if I was contentious or if I was arrogant. And if I did something that hurt you, I'm going to answer for that. If I try to distance myself with you because selfishly I would rather not have to deal with someone right now, I'll answer for that. And so Paul says, as we work this out, we have to do so with fear and trembling. But with this negative reinforcement comes the positive reminder that it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now this is one of these mysterious intersections of divine sovereignty and human free will that we're never going to understand. <clears throat> and we're not called to do so. We have to affirm what the Bible affirms, uh, obey what the Bible commands. We don't have to, we won't be able to understand how all of this fits together perfectly. There are three great mysteries of the Christian faith. The Trinity, uh, the hypostatic union by which Christ was both God and man simultaneously, and divine sovereignty in, who, in our free will that we are free agents that are culpable and responsible for the commands that God gives us, but that somehow God gets all the glory because He was the one who prompts us and enables us to do any good thing within us. And that's a mystery. We don't know how that works, but it's a fact. And it should encourage us that God at the end is prompting and enabling us what He commands us to do. So you remember Gideon? And there in a time when the Midianites were over Israel and Gideon is a fearful man thrashing out the wheat in a well to not be seen. And God says, rise up and deliver your people. Tear down the altar of Baal. And it was God that gave the command. It was God that gave the courage. It was God that gave the ability. It was God that gave the victory. But what did Gideon have to do? He had to respond to the prompting. He had to go and tear down the tabernacle or the, the altar. He had to go with the 30,000 that became 3,000 that became 300, and he had to enter the battle. Now, one of my brother's favorite verses is Proverbs of, we prepare the horse for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And that's how God works, is he prompts us. And then when we respond, he enables us, and then we obey and fruit is born, and we get the joy of being used and God gets the glory of using even the likes of us, which is astounding. So um, when I went to seminary, I thought I was going to be a missionary in Latin America. And then I got some teaching opportunities and I thought that I would be a professor at a secular university or at a seminary overseas. And then I worked in a missions office where I could do missions and teaching and overseas work. <clears throat> and then one day, <clears throat> the missions pastor, my boss, James Arnold, <clears throat> said, I'm called to the mission field myself and I'm leaving my church in Sanger. And in that moment, I felt this overwhelming compulsion that God wanted me to pastor this church in Sanger. I had been to the church maybe once or twice. I had never thought about pastoring in my life. I had never thought about preaching in my life. And I had this overwhelming compunction. I have to go pastor this church. I was literally awake at night worried that someone else was going to get to the church before I did. Which those of you who've been to the church will laugh at that. It was this strip center church in this small community. But I had to go do this. And so I go talking to my wife about it. And she goes, well, I can see how you'd be called to be a pastor. But I'm definitely not called to be a pastor's wife. <laughs> and she wanted no part of that. 
And yet, I didn't want to preach, but God called me to preach, and he enabled the preaching. I never expected to pastor. Um, I'm a highly functioning hermit. I'm an introvert by nature. And, uh, but God enabled me to do it. And God made a beautiful pastor's wife out of my wife. And we were able to be used of God in preparation for this later work that we didn't know he was going to have us do. But it was all God, clearly. <laughs> Just like anything that's being done here is all God, clearly. But what did we have to do? We had to respond. We had to say, okay, Lord, I'll try that. Now I'm going to make a mess of it. You've got to show up and do it. And you know what? He does. And y'all resonate with that that God put on some of your hearts to go and be a part of that playground crew. And then God gave you the ability and the skills and the experience and the tools to be able to go and build something that's safe for the kids to climb on. And then God moved some to make the hot dogs for today's celebration. And God put that compunction, that desire, that will in your heart. It was God willing within you, but you had to respond. And then God enables it. And we get the joy of being used and God gets the glory of using the likes of us wondrous it's marvelous it's the gospel it's ministry and that's what paul's calling us to be encouraged one final word on the role of works and faith because it could be confused paul says in ephesians 2 that by grace we have been saved through faith not of ourselves it's the gift of god not as a result of works we cannot earn our own salvation we do not get into heaven because we've been good people or we're relatively more righteous than our wicked neighbors. We are saved by God's mercy and grace alone that we receive by faith alone. And yet, we are His workmanship created anew in Christ Jesus for good works. God saves us for good works, which, look, He prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Before God made you, before God saved you, God planned good works that you would do, and they're just waiting there for you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a video gamer. What was the video game that kids used to play a little while that you'd walk around and they would find these little rewards? Pokemon or something. And there were all these kind of prizes awaiting their life as they went throughout the day. Or uh, when our daughter Rachel, who's about to turn 20, can't believe, one of her early birthdays is we had a scavenger hunt at Stonebriar Mall, and she had to go here where there was popcorn waiting for her. And then she went here where there was a carousel ride. And then we went here where there was a meal she enjoyed. And it all led up to a Blue's Clues. So she liked Blue's Clues, and we went and saw Blue's Clues live in Plano. But it was a scavenger hunt, and it was next one joy after another that we're just waiting for because we had planned them in advance. And that's what God has done for you and I with good works. God has before us each day good works that he has waiting for us. This person to encourage, this saint to pray for, this good deed to do, this person to help, this one to forgive. And they're all lined up waiting for us. And God is just there waiting, watching for us to arrive at that moment that he's planned. And he prompts us, why don't you call that person and give them an encouraging word? I don't want to call that person. I don't like that person. I'm mad at that person. God enable me. He does. We call. They're blessed. There's reconciliation. And God gets all the glory. Isn't that a great way to go through life? 
to wake up every day in anticipation of the good works that God has for us that day, knowing that we're inadequate in ourselves, but yet God is going to make us adequate for every good thing, and we get the joy of being used, and God gets the glory of using the likes of us. It's a wonderful way to live if we embrace it. But if we're going to do it, there's something we can't do, and that's in verses 14 and 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, grumbling literally means an utterance made in a low tone, tone of voice. It's just kind of this mumble, grumble. It's a complaining, critical spirit that we complain about someone else. It's one of the characteristic sins of Israel between Exodus and the Promised Land that God is constantly judging them for. As God blesses them with manna, this miraculous food on the dew, on the desert, and what do they do? They grumble about the manna. They grumble all the time because we're a complaining people. The other thing that we typically do is we contend, we dispute, which is a verbal argument. And so Jesus' apostles were contending, disputing with one another as to which of them was greatest, which is really what all of our disputes are about because I'm right, you're wrong clearly, and you just don't get it yet. And so we argue. And so uh, it's like the t-shirt says, I'd agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. And so, and so we get into these arguments and we contend and we conflict. And Paul says, you can't do that. Because we as Christians, and notice he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing because we can grumble and dispute about anything. We are a cantankerous lot, we Christians. <laughs> we will complain about the music, about the coffee, about the lighting, about the sermon, about the situation, about the seating, about if it's being done, we'll find a way to complain about it. And then oftentimes that will turn into a dispute because we'll find a way to contend about it. And so uh, Nock and I hosted a family last night. Uh, she was a missionary student that I knew 20 years ago. They were passing through on their way to Corpus from Kansas, stayed the night with us. And he was a pastor as well and I said, when I say this verse, do all things without grumbling and complaining, uh, does an illustration come to mind? He goes, dude, the organization, the denomination that I was ordained in was about to merge with another denomination. And it was going to be this beautiful act of unity of we had been together, we separated, we came together, we agreed in all these areas, except we couldn't decide whether the person at this level of the org chart would be called a bishop or a superintendent. And on that issue, they split, remained apart, but now with renewed bitter feelings. It's like, really? Uh, I've had the opportunity to visit Germany and to go to a place called Marburg, where there was a colloquy, a meeting, hosted by a German prince to try to bring the Lutherans and then the followers of Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich together to merge the Protestant denomination. So in October, they came together and they met and they had 15 points of doctrine that they wanted to discuss because they needed to unite because the persecution from the Roman Catholic forces was getting harsher. And so they agreed on 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 points they were in agreement in. And then they came to the issue of what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body. And for Luther, if you're a Lutheran background, they believe in the, that Jesus is present in, with, and under the elements. It's what's called consubstantiation. So Luther said, well, it's, this is my body. Jesus is there in the bread, in the wine. And Zwingli replied, 
No, no, but he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's memento. Luther, this is my body. Zwingli, do this in remembrance. And at one point, as this went back and forth, it says that Luther took out a knife and carved into the table in Latin, this is my body. Zwingli, this is done in remembrance of me. And they split. And the movements never came together. Zwingli died a couple years later on uh, the battlefield. And they found his body and the Roman Catholic forces cut him into small pieces uh, to desecrate the body, lest anyone could make a memento of it. But yet later when the Protestants out, they found the heart of, Zur of Zwingli still intact, still beating for the gospel. Which isn't true, but it's a great legend. It's a great Protestant anecdote. <laughs> but what is true is that here in this room, these two godly men and these two important emerging movements couldn't come together. And I felt such an overwhelming sadness in that room that here was the fault line, here was the fracture, here was the point, the impact point, that the whole thing splintered and never has come together. So Paul says, you must do all things, setting up a playground, planning a potluck meal, getting the children after church. You must do all things without grumbling or disputing because otherwise we will do all things with grumbling and disputing complaining about one another, disputing and contending with one another in a way that prevents us from being whom God has called us to be. Paul goes on. The reason we have to do this is so that we will prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Now these are very vivid adjectives that Paul uses. Something that is crooked is something that is twisted, something that is deformed. And so God laid these straight paths for us to walk down, the paths of righteousness, the holy highway. And we twist them and we bend them around. And likewise, perversion has the idea of something that has been deformed. God formed it perfectly and we deformed it. Uh, have you ever seen the pictures of Chernobyl fruit? So Chernobyl, the nuclear reactor plant in Ukraine, there was a meltdown and the radiation went out. And then later as they went in to see the effect the radiation had on the surrounding area. And there are these terrible trees and there are these gruesome pieces of vegetation. And there are these vegetables and fruits that are emerging that are just noxious because they're all deformed and twisted. And Paul says, that's what a fallen world is like. Taking God's good straight things and bending and twisting and corrupting them. Taking what is pure and polluting it taking what is righteous and making it wicked, taking what should be unified and dividing it, taking what should be separated and uniting it in a wicked way. And in the midst of that moral and intellectual and relational darkness, God intends us to be blameless, not just in his eyes, but the eyes of the world, to be innocent, that no one can levy a legitimate charge against us and therefore show ourselves to be God's children. But when we're bickering among ourselves, when we're complaining about each other to others, we defame our God and we blemish our testimony and we look no better than anyone else. And my goodness, have we given the world some fodder this last year? And such things ought not be. Instead, what we're intended to be is appearing, literally shining like lights, which has the idea of stars in the heavens against the blackness of the world. 
So one year we took a vacation in Lake Mead, uh, Nevada, Arizona, somewhere on the border. And the family that we were vacationing with rented a houseboat and as kids we slept on top of the roof. I don't know if you remember this. And laying on the roof of a houseboat in the middle of Nevada, Arizona, that first night when the stars began to emerge. I know some of you all have gone to Fort Davis and other places where there's no light pollution. And the star, more stars than I've ever seen in my life. More brilliant, more close than I've ever seen in my life. And then there was this strange milky band. There are places where you can see so many stars so close together that you're actually looking at the band of the Milky Way. You're looking at the cross section of the galaxy where the stars are more closely in orbit around one another. And there in Lake Mead, there were stars emerging from the blackness. And that's what we're intended to be. You and I are God's, God's light to a dark world. That everything's bent, but this is straight. Everything's crooked, but this is right. Everything's malformed, but this is formed correctly. Everything is unrighteous, but this is righteous. Everything's hateful, but this is loving. Everything's discordant, but this is unified. And as we come together, <clears throat> we're to be bright for Christ. And just like there's horsepower, that's a unit of measure for the amount of work that we've done. Before there were lumens, does anyone know how we used to measure light? Candle power. And they found a standard candle of a certain size burning with the oil from a sperm whale, and that was a candle. And then if you put two candles together, you had two candle power. Three, four, five. And the more candles and the more close, the more bright, and then you could all of a sudden make a beacon that would keep a ship from foundering on the shoals. Well, all of us are individual lights, but when we come together and function as a, as a community, all those candles start coming together into one bright blazing beacon that is supposed to draw the world in, to bring them to where it's safe, to come to where there's truth, to come to where there's love, to come to where there's help and solace and comfort. But we can't do that if we're separated or blowing each other's lights out. We have to be unified. And so here at Dini Community Church, God has called us to let our light shine before men in such a way that the world sees our good works and glorifies who? Our Father who is in heaven. Because He was the one who was willing and working within us to prompt us, to enable us to do this thing. But we have to be one. We can't grumble and complain against one another. And the other thing that's going to allow us to show that we truly belong to God, that we're truly His children, is that we have to hold fast the word of life. The word of life is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that gives life. That the good news, the word of life, is that even though we are sinners, God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to live the perfect life that we could never live so that the righteous requirements of the law would be fulfilled. And then to take on all of our sins, past, present, and future, and to die for us so that the wrath of God will fall on Jesus and not on us. So that if we will simply say, God, I'm a sinner, would you please forgive me? And I accept Jesus as my Savior, then your sins, though scarlet, will be made as white as snow. You will be born above, from above, and made a new creation in Christ. God will put his Holy Spirit within you to make you more and more like Christ. And God will make you a member of his family, and you get to spend the rest of your time here on earth with the saints helping each other grow to be more like Christ and to beckon others to Christ until that glorious day that Christ comes and we spend eternity with Him face to face. That's the good news. And we have to hold fast to it.
We can't abandon it because the world doesn't like it. We can't alter it because it's unpopular. We can't add to it because that would make us more likable in the eyes of the world. We hold fast to that word of life. And then Paul says, giving them yet another reason to obey this. So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is the third time already in the book of Philippians that Paul makes mention of the day of Christ, the day when Christ returns and we stand before his judgment seat. And Paul describes his ministry as a long race because ministry is a long race. Papa Mel there is the back is still running. He's going to break the tape at speed. And he also describes it as toil because it's hard and it's difficult and it's painful. But Paul says it all will have been worth it. Everything that I did in Philippi and for the Philippians, so long as I know that you were faithful in the end. And I get to stand there and God says, Paul, what'd you do with your life? I spent it with the Philippians. Well, how did that investment pay off? Look at them. They love one another. They selflessly serve one another like Christ did. When the world opposed them, they stood firm. When the world resisted them, they strived together single-mindedly for the, for the sake of the gospel. And God's going to say, well done. And Paul, like a power, proud parent, is going to say, yeah, look at those Philippians. And so we are to continue holding fast the gospel, following after Christ, being conformed to his likeness, growing in godliness, growing in love, all the way to the end. And then thirdly, there is joy in this that we get to share with one another. Verse 17 and 18. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul uses sacrificial imagery to say, Philippians, I know it's hard. I know you're being persecuted and opposed and you're suffering for the gospel. And that's a sacrifice. It's like a burnt offering that you're presenting to God. And, and I rejoice in what you're doing. And even if I, who's in prison at the time, if Paul says, if I lose my life for Christ, that's like pouring out a drink offering that either on or beside a burnt offering, sometimes a libation, a cup would be poured out on the ground, a complete emptying to honor God. And so he says, I so appreciate your sacrifice and compared to what you're dealing with, I compare my own, even martyrdom, to this small thing that comes that I get to add to it. And, and you're finding joy in me because you're hearing that I'm standing firm for the gospel even though I'm in prison and that the whole Praetorian Guard and others are hearing about Christ and you're rejoicing in that and I'm rejoicing in this because I'm happy to suffer for the sake of Christ and we all get to celebrate. And so there's a parallel here. Paul says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You rejoice and share your joy with me. We're joyful to suffer for Christ. We're joyful when others suffer for Christ. And this is a joyful endeavor, even though it's a hard one. That my brother played football. I know many of y'all's did too. I see Ben and others here. And when the offensive squad is on the field, the people on the sideline are watching them getting beaten and banged up. And they're taking joy in their first downs. And they're taking joy in their touchdowns. And then they swap. And the defensive unit comes out. And the offensive unit is on the side. And they're taking joy in the battering, punishing, bruising that's going on in the defensive squad. Because it's all same team. It's all same game. It's all same cause. Right now you're suffering, and I'm here watching. You're glad to be out there playing. I'm cheering you on. And then we switch, 
But we're all the same team. We all get to join in this. And that's what Christianity is. That when it's our time to suffer for the gospel, we should be glad to do that for Jesus. He suffered for us. And other Christians are proud of us and they're praying for us and they're encouraging us. And when we read about other Christians suffering in other places, we pray for them, support them, tell them we're proud of them. But it's same team, same God, same call, same cause, same God. And Paul now bookends the beginning and end of this section with several common themes. So let's look at 1, 27 to 30 where we started and 2, 12 to 18 where we ended. First of all, Paul began as his primary point of application to the Philippians was conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You've been saved, live in a manner that fits with that salvation. He says the same thing in verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those who receive the gospel are expected to live a life that is gospel worthy. And that obedience is required whether or not someone is present with us or not, whether or not we're in the presence of God or our spiritual father or not. So Paul said, whether I come and see you or remain absent, he says in verse 12, not in my presence only, but also in my absence. Our obedience isn't contingent upon anyone being with us. We obey because God tells us to obey. It's that simple. And the obedience that's called for explicitly in this opening passage is unity. That to live in a gospel-worthy manner, we must be in one spirit. We must be one-minded, striving for the gospel. Which is why we must do all things without grumbling or disputing. God is a triunity. Three distinct persons in one unified being. God's people are to be distinct, but one. When we're divisive, when we're contentious, when we complain against one another and criticize one another then we are living unlike our God. We're bearing bad testimony to our God and Savior. We do it for the gospel's sake. They strive together for the faith of the gospel, appear as lights as the world, holding fast the word of life, because the reason that God leaves us here and allows us to live as a loving community, living as one, is so that the world will come and give themselves to Christ. That the world is so hard, and it's dog-eat-dog, dog and it's cutthroat, but in the church there's compassion. In the church, there's love. There's rejection out there. There's acceptance in here. There's criticism out there. There's encouragement here. We're edifying in here, even if it's divisive and destructive out there. And that's our light. That's our corporate testimony that draws the world to Christ, which is why the church is here. And then he gives us our eschatological hope. Our suffering is a sign of salvation. If we weren't living for Christ, the world wouldn't reject us and persecute us. He says, in the day of Christ, I'll have reason to glory. And then our suffering, which is part of it, can be put in perspective. Paul says, to you it has been granted. You've been honored with the opportunity to suffer for Christ. And there he talks about the Philippians' sacrifice and service, which is uh, probably sacrificial service. It's a Greek uh, construct called the hindiades of using two words to convey one idea. They're sacrificial service for Christ. So today we're celebrating the grand opening of our new playground. <clears throat> And God put on each individual's heart to give to the church so that we could give to the community and to our families by building that playground. And then God prompted some of you to give up your Saturdays to come up and build that. 
And God prompted some of you to come out and do the groundwork and the leveling work. And God prompted some of you to prepare the meals for today to help serve and to celebrate that. And each one of us were doing this as an outworking of our salvation because we were saved to do good deeds. God laid them before us to walk in them. But the opportunity was there for us to grumble about one another. You know, that land wasn't as perfectly flat as I was expecting it. And I don't know what Scott was thinking with that much mulch. And then we start disagreeing with, well, you're reading the plans wrong. We're going to have to orient this differently. We're going to put, and the opportunity was there for conflict. But the men didn't do that. They didn't grumble about one another. They didn't contend with one another. Instead, they worked together to build this thing. And there was fun, there was fellowship, there was pride, there was rejoicing. And now we've lit another light for our community. And that's just one example of what God is going to do here at Dini Community Church. He's going to prompt you to do something. He's willing within you. And now you get to respond and say, Lord, I'm willing, but I'm unable. And God says, that's okay, because I always enable what I require. And he's going to give you the ability to do more than you thought you could do. To sit with the kids for a whole hour and 15 minutes in children's church. To go out on the neighborhood next week. And as you're picking up trash, you're going to feel this conviction because you're going to be with Bob. You're going to see a neighbor and you're going to say, oh no, Bob's going to start talking to that person. And he will. <laughs> then they're going to say, and Bob's going to want me to share my testimony. And he will. And you're going to be scared and that's okay. And you're going to say, God help me. And he will. And you'll share your testimony and God will use that. And there's going to be temptations for us to grumble about one another, to complain about one another, to be critical of one another. There's going to be plenty of occasions for us to contend with one another and dispute with one another. And then to just split because it's either to leave than to see that person again after that blow up. But we have to to show ourselves blameless and innocent, to prove ourselves to be children of God, shining brighter and brighter against the darkening and darkening blackness of our world so that people come to the light, receive Christ, and we will be able to rejoice and to rejoice with one another and then hear those glorious words someday, well done, good and faithful servants. What a life, what a privilege, what a call. May God grant us the grace to be faithful to it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this beautiful text. Thank you for these four paragraphs that together reinforce the importance of our loving unity. And we do confess that we're critical. We do confess that we're contentious. We confess that we're selfless and self-seeking. We're proud and not humble. Forgive us. Help us to be more like Christ. Inspire us to aspire to be like our Savior. Help us to be obedient to our Lord. Make us one. Will much good within us. And help us respond. Do much good within us. And enable us to perform. So that we get the joy of being used. And you get all the glory for using and accomplishing things through the likes of us. Bless us, keep us, pray, uh, unify us, use us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.